Welcome to the Creative Play and Podcast Network. Join us as we share our favorite RPGs, one-shot games, tabletop games, reviews, and convention panels. Sit back and enjoy the show. If you haven't rated us yet, we'd greatly appreciate it if you could. And if you're looking for more ways to support our efforts, we are now on Patreon, a great site where you can help us continue making more podcasts, as well as some special surprises for our patrons. If you can, please look us up at www.patreon.com cppn. Every little bit helps. And again, thank you for listening. All right. Getting on the right Almost time. Yeah. We've got a good-sized panel. Yeah. At least we don't have more panel than the audience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and at least in my panel, that happens sometimes. Welcome, mad scientists. Or something. Um, I guess we can just go across. I, I'm talking first. That doesn't mean I want to be the moderator. But uh, yeah, sorry, you're you just got elected. Woo-hoo! Okay. So you put your foot in. Okay. All right. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right, so I'm Ross Lampert. I am a uh, science fiction author, although right now I'm working on a six-book nonfiction series, but it'll be for writers. So that's, uh, I guess that's reasonably close. That's the uh, the third book, just came out in August. That's the uh, the completion of that trilogy, The Eternity Plague, and, and uh, this panel fits very nicely with that, uh, that series because one of the things I insisted I would not do is have a mad scientist cause it. Although, we'll talk about later whether she goes mad late in the book, but uh, we'll see. So anyway, that's, that's me. Oh. I'm Wolf Forrest, a local artist and author, and a uh, long time Tescon goer, so uh, people will get sick of seeing me at some point, so I'm trying to make this panel as interesting as possible. <laughs> I'm uh, Adam Marsh. I don't have a sign, so I'll just post my book up there. Um, yeah, this is uh, Mariner's Wake, published through uh, Brickcave Media. Um, they were, yeah, great enough to get me invited to the, the conference today. So look forward to talking to y'all about mad scientists. Uh, I'm Jim Doty. I write science fiction and fantasy under my initials, J.L. Doty. <clears throat> I have 15 published novels, a mix of traditional, traditionally published with HarperCollins and Open Road Media, and self-published. I've been most successful at uh, self-publishing. I'm also a scientist. My specialty is laser physics. And as my as my friends in the scientific community have pointed out to me repeatedly, all of my nonfiction scientific writing was really science fiction anyway. So what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> well, pull on them. <laughs> well, I'm Gloria McMillan, and I just want to say they said that about Isaac Asimov too. So you're in good company. I'm going to stand up to introduce myself because I'm very short compared to everyone else. I think. And, my, and I think I said my name is Gloria McMillan. And I've been coming to these since the 1970s. Maybe I missed the very first one, but I think I was here by the second one. Um, I do editing. I haven't written much in science fiction, but I coordinate the hard science, science fiction Zoomers group that meets once a month. 
and we're also having a spin-off, which is going to be live theater and science fiction. We're going to produce it right here locally, and I'm doing a little panel at 7 on live the, the history of science fiction and live theater, not film, live theater. So I'm so glad you all could be here. So let me, uh, since uh, I've been elected or shanghaied into this, um, before we get to where they've gone, what makes a mad scientist? What, what, how does a scientist qualify to be mad and like, considered by whom? Well, I think we might have to go back to historical antecedents and you could argue that Prometheus was the first mad scientist because he deigned to fiddle in things that man is not meant to know by bringing fire to the earth and <coughs> incurring the wrath of the anger of the gods and for his I don't know, temerity you know he was chained to a rock and his liver was eaten daily by vultures until I was a Perseus that saved him anyway he, he got out of that gig but uh, <laughs> you recall that was Mary, a tough gig yeah, <laughs> uh, Mary Shelley's subtitle of Frankenstein was the modern Prometheus so she made a direct reference to uh, to that uh, to that ancient myth and then of course you've got the legend of the Gollum which is the creator is a rabbi, but in effect he's a mad scientist bringing something inanimate to life for to do his bidding. That's what uh, all monsters wind up doing, hopefully, <laughs> but they usually wind up turning on their creator. Yes, yes. So I, I lived in, speaking of Mary Shelley, I lived in Eberstadt, Germany, mm -hmm. a little teeny town right at the base of the <coughs> north end of the uh, Bergstrasse. And Schloss Frankenstein was on the hill, oh, okay. and that was the inspiration for, for Mary Shelley's oh, story. Really? So, uh, and uh, yeah. one of the problems they have is that every year on Halloween, all the Americans mob <laughs> Schloss Frankenstein and make a big nuisance out of themselves. Yeah, and the I'm, Germans I'm sure like, the sign gets stolen a lot, too. Yeah, you know, yeah. had to put armed guards or something. <laughs> so I, I think one of the things that makes a mad scientist is, is the mythos of science, and that uh, now, one of the things I've noticed is that the, the science fiction community is far more knowledgeable in science than the, than the typical average run-of-the-mill person on the street. And I think to a lot of people, science is this really complicated thing that they feel they can't understand. And, that, and so therefore, they, I think they, there's a little element of that they view all scientists as, as kind of mad in that, that somehow they're connected to something that the rest of us aren't, you know, when in fact it's, it's a lot of boring stuff frequently, you know. Yeah, that's really true. I think uh, you can even kind of draw parallels between the mad scientist and then in classical fiction you had the sorcerer or the sorceress queen, that there's a lot of hand waving, <coughs> but this person has a lot of power. So. You know, I, I think you saw mad scientists a lot, um, especially in the golden age of science fiction and in earlier days where the public was a lot more mystified, I think, by what was happening. Like, if you could imagine somebody, when radios first came around, or televisions, how does any of this stuff work? I don't know, it's magic, right? So a mad scientist is a character with a lot of power because they understand this very, you know, esoteric and mysterious knowledge. So there's, I think, some parallels between that and even more classical stories, which is pretty cool. Yeah, and not all mad scientists 
start out to be mad. They may have good intentions, but the, uh, the knowledge they obtain corrupts their psyche or their soul. And they see, uh, you know, it goes back to the, the character of Griffin in The Invisible Man. You know, he stumbled upon this kind of accidentally, but then he saw the potential and it's like, wow, I'm drunk with power now, you know, I can go out and become invisible and I can steal, I can, I can, I can rule the world. And also, I think monocane had a side effect of kind of, you know, <laughs> causing you to lose your critical faculties and that might have been part of his, uh, but it all goes back to, you know, every time you tamper and stuff that's beyond the ken of human understanding, there's a price to pay, so. Jump in. Oh, well, good point. Oh, oh good hello. Point. <laughs> yeah, jump in. Go ahead and stand up. Um, it also goes all the way back to Prague in the 15 and 1600s because we had this um, court of Rudolf II, where I believe Rabbi Lowe was also in that time who created the Gollum, but also this huge mob of alchemists and astrologers like Kepler and Tycho Brahe were astrologers to the court. So those distinctions between magic and uh, science were not even firm in those days. And of course, Kepler could have been the first Central European mad scientist because he was very envious of the data that Tycho Brahe had assembled on the planets, and he wanted that data. And Tycho Brahe was a very selfish kind of um, diva kind of scientist, and he wasn't <laughs> going to share it with any old Kepler. So now the thinking is that Kepler poisoned him to get that data. Mm -hmm. So that truly makes Kepler one of our, not, he's even fictionalized in some, I'd have to go back and look, but there are fictional people who resemble Kepler. So anyway, so that's the, that's the Prague. So in fact, they weren't, their, their title, both Brahe and Kepler, their titles were imperi the uh, imperial mathematician uh, to the Emperor, Emperor something, Rudolf Emperor Rudolf II in Prague, yeah. and so they, their their titles were mathematician, um, and Brahe was, uh, and some of you might have heard me say this before, Brahe was more of a, a statistician, mm -hmm. in that he uh, he made measurements, but he didn't do much with them, uh, and he made extensive measurements of the positions of the planets as they as they orbited around the Earth, which was the prevailing theory that the Earth was the center of the universe. And, and uh, Kepler was his protege. I, I, I hadn't heard that they were taking, he, he Oh no, he they're going him? beyond thinking. They've got plenty of evidence now. What's oh. the name of that book, Bob, about the murder? Oh, uh, A divine, or, anyway. But I hadn't heavenly, heard that Heavenly yeah. intrigue, and it's, it's common knowledge <coughs> now in the field of astronomy that Kepler probably did the deed. And yes, he was under Brahe, but you know. So Kepler inherited yeah. his position. And as imperial mathematician yeah. and his data, yeah. So I hadn't I hadn't heard of that. Yeah, That's well, cool. That's they, interesting. They did. They dug up old Tycho and they found many many times the amount of arsenic in his uh, system, and the, the the fingers are all going toward <laughs> Kepler. It's a cold case. Go ahead. Kepler even implicated himself in his own diaries. Really. Mm. So uh, this was a very thoroughly done study. Heavenly Intrigue is the title of the book. It came out about, I don't know, five or ten years ago. But should we distinguish between mad scientist and just devious, <laughs> corrupt murderer scientist? <laughs> I, think we think, I think a mad scientist is, you know, the, you know, like the Invisible Man. He went kind of 
crazy at the end of that. Yeah, know? he didn't foresee how far this is going to go, but once the mechanism is unshipped, like in the Krell labs, you can't really stop it. It's a chain reaction. Yeah, yeah. that's that's really <laughs> one of the key questions: is who determines who, whether this person is quote unquote mad or not, and and by what standards? Right. Is it is it a case of well, this person is just going beyond what is allowed, as as Wolf was saying with some of the, the early examples, or is this person really off their rocker and you know, well, you start violating the unspoken norms of society? Yeah. Or if it's not going to benefit you directly, it's like they say, you know, if your neighbor loses his job, it's a recession. If you lose your job, it's a depression. Yeah. If it doesn't affect you directly, you may be a bit more critical in that person's approach to uh, you know whatever science is going on and whether mm -hmm. there's specific applications that are intended or the law of unintended consequences right. you know or yeah. again yeah it's beyond my ability to stop this now yeah that's that was uh, when I was talking about how that uh, that became a factor in in this book and, uh, I'll, I'll get right to right that I guess I'll just thank you Chris um, the uh, the, the scientist protagonist in the story is absolutely determined she is not going to, um, you know, she's going to follow the rules of biological science right. until she finds herself, feels just she's backed into a corner and she has no other choice than to do what everybody else in the community would be, would consider mad, totally mad, right. and a, a violation of every single norm. But she says there's no other way, and then uh, her final act, or what seems to be her final act, is to commit suicide. I have a question. Um, I think the title of the talk, this panel, was "Where Have They Gone?" Yeah. So evidently, there, we're assuming there was an arc in fiction and film, I guess, to have these mad scientists. And I just wanted to contribute some statistics about that. Go ahead. And I hope you can all hear me. I'll shout. Stand up. Uh, uh, okay, back to standing up. <laughs> a recent, this was done in the UK, so you know it may be a little off from the American uh, audiences. But a recent study of 1,000 horror films, and it's only film, distributed in the UK from the 1930s through the 1980s, reveals that mad scientists or their creations have been the villains of 30% of the films. Scientific research has produced. 39% of the threats, and by contrast, scientists have been the heroes of a mere 11%. Mm -hmm. so there you go. And it was from 39 until when? From 1930s through the 1980s. 80s, okay. Chris. Um, the pattern I have seen through literature and sometimes in real life is you'll have a group, uh, let's say an engineering group or some sort of scientific group, and you'll have the bright, eccentric individual among them who wants to push forward with an idea, but the group itself says, no, let's, let's not go that way. Sometimes for excellent reasons, mm -hmm. um, that person goes off on his own and starts doing his bit. Now what does he do? He, re he removes himself from peer review. Right. Um, he misses inputs that might very, like, you're going the wrong way, but he doesn't know it because of no peer review. Mm -hmm. uh, goes off and creates this wildly powerful thing and it's out of control. Um, having been a member of several engineering groups, I've watched this happen. <laughs> 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 
Fortunately, the ability to go into your basement and create the unobtainium bomb <laughs> is beyond the uh, reach of most individuals. Yeah. But um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, piggybacking off that, I think obsession is a key factor. And the isolation, when you go back to Frankenstein, I think the doctor loses family members and then withdraws from everyone in his studies and tries to bring people back to life. His obsession is to overcome that personal tragedy. So yes, the isolation is key, along with obsession. I also think one of the big things that there's a difference to mad scientists at one point were at a, at a time where the individual was much more uh, considered the, uh, the the forefront of any of the stories. Whereas when it's funny that that thing says uh, it ended in 1980, which is about the time when you have Wayland Yutani and we start having all of these corporations <coughs> that become the bad guys, that become the people who are forcing. Uh, the scientists perhaps do certain things. So the story arc shifts. We have the shift between the individual, who is the mad scientist, then we have a group of people who are being uh, being uh, fed money or being fed pressure. You know, Oppenheimer, right? About Oppenheimer and all these guys, everybody blames, uh, talks about the mad scientists. Well, it was a bunch of generals and politicians that sat there and said, we have a line in the sand and we better come up with an answer before these guys come up with it wasn't scientists in a corner somewhere going, you know, it would be great if we came up with a, a killer weapon. They were asked, you need to come up with a weapon. We're not going to make it through this thing. So I think we have a change that happens in the storyline. We go from where it's a single scientist to a group, a soulless group that has all of this stuff, maybe stock members, whatever it might be, are the bad guys that keep this thing. I think that's what I've seen in, in the stories. Yeah. I, I was just thinking the same thing, you know, uh, the Manhattan Project was government-sanctioned mad yeah. science, because there were many scientists and physicists that thought that this <coughs> might uh, set the atmosphere on fire, that there yes. might be a chain reaction, because there's no precedent. Yes. You can extrapolate it until doomsday, no pun intended, and uh, you can't see, remember Edward Teller's words, the Bhagavad Gita, I have the destroyer of worlds. Yeah. And if it weren't for that test and the subsequent atomic bombs, We'd have a whole spate of movies from the 1950s that wouldn't exist. Absolutely. Creatures that were created through the yeah. atomic test in New Mexico, but yeah. yeah. Nevada and other places. Yeah. What's intriguing about that is that you have two different versions of storytelling that come from that. So you have the giant ants, which is basically the American idea, which is uh, what have we done? Oh, by the way, now that we've done that, we've got to watch because the bad guys are going to be under the ground in the sewers taking over LA. We've got to burn them. Then you have the Japanese side, which is basically saying, what have we wrought? And uh, I always thought it was interesting that Godzilla comes and attacks Tokyo. It doesn't go after New York or LA. It's this idea of a reckoning. And there's the Bikini Atoll. They're still having the bomb uh, tests out there. So it's almost like a weird protest that happens. We have these two great monsters that come out of uh, the idea of what we did. I love you brought up the idea of the atmosphere may never stop blowing up, which was one of the thoughts that was there, the chain reaction. And yet they were still willing to go ahead and do we it. did it. That's a great choice. <laughs> they said, oh, well, it's either that or, you know. Yeah, well, Teller said, my bad, plus a set of a minus sign here. Never yeah, mind. yeah. <laughs> yeah move that right. decimal point two places to the right, your probe misses yeah. Mars. So. Yeah. <laughs> Question in the back. Comment. So don't you think, though, it's who's telling the story? Because, and how the story turns out. 
because when you're talking about the mad scientist and you're talking about the person who goes off to do their own thing, I mean, we wouldn't have the kinds of, we wouldn't have had the leaps in computer science if two guys hadn't gone, isolated themselves in a garage and built them, right? So if you, if, if Frankenstein had actually been able to bring life back in a way that he could accept, because the, if he did do it, it's the, the way that it turned out that paints him as a mad scientist. So don't you think that it's just like with history, it's who's telling the story? Oh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, uh, remember during the early days of the pandemic, we were talking about government-sanctioned mad scientists. We didn't know if the coronavirus escaped from a lab in Wuhan or if it was brought in by, you know, animals, exotic animals from various countries to be, to be sold at wet markets. And there's still doubt, you know. We, we think we know where it came from, but you can never be sure. Who knows who's, what the Chinese are doing behind closed doors, or any other group for that matter. It's still government-sanctioned mad scientists. So where have all the mad scientists gone? They've never gone. They're still there. It's just not as obvious as it used to be. So I picked up on the point earlier that it's less easy, if not close to impossible, for a single individual now to do the kinds of things that will create these kinds of worldwide um, crises, or even just local, large-scale crises, it, it now, just because the science and technology could have advanced as far as they have, it becomes a, a case of now it has to be groups doing it. Gloria, and then in the back. Oh, just that. I think now that niche is taken by the mad terrorists, because you can have a Unabomber, and they could actually triple a city or do something. I don't want to give any suggestions here. <laughs> I mean, it could not only be personal in, in damage, but it could be regional of yeah. one mad terrorist. Okay. In the back. Yeah, and following up on your point, um, the, the terrorists, because bioterrorism can still be done in a basement. Yeah. Because we still have the anthrax, the person who mailed anthrax after 9-11, they probably made that in their basement. You know, you could probably go out in the desert and isolate Bacillus anthracis from the soil out here. It's endemic. And I, I'm not sure if what I'm about to say is correct, but I believe the real anthrax was he stole it from the laboratory where he was working. Um, yeah, but I but you still you don't need real anthrax to have bioterrorism. Correct. You can just put a plain white powder in there and scare the shit out of a lot of people. That's true. Mm -hmm. But I can go out into the desert here and isolate plague and valley fever mm -hmm. and um, I don't, yeah I oh. won't. But I can't. <laughs> don't tell us how. No, you but, can make your own rice from castor beans. But to culture it, difficult process. But to culture it and actually grow a large amount of it so that you have something that you can put in an envelope right. and mail to someone, that requires a lot of equipment. Um, it, 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 it's not just a, a beaker and, an, and a Bunsen burner and things like that. It requires a lot more equipment. Distillation equipment, cultural equipment is required. So uh, again, you, 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 you may be able to um, get some samples out of the desert, but without a laboratory and a lot of equipment, you're not going to be able to culture it and actually grow uh, enough of a of a uh, of a medium to be able to say you harm harm more than a, a person or two. Pardon me. <clears throat> you could grow enough to make a small statement, <clears throat> but not a large one. 
Let's do the lady in green up here front, uh, and then, then we'll come to the back. I was going to say that in regards to mad scientists in fiction, it might be more people's perceptions of what's dangerous. Because if people think, you know, what if somebody is a bioterrorist working from their basement, then you're going to get fictional works where that happens. Whereas even if it's actually not feasible, that's it's a public fear. So that's what the fiction is going to reflect. And that, that's a good point because we saw that with atomic power, where it was going to be the, the salvation of mankind. We're going to all have this unlimited amount of energy. And then World War II happens, and now it's, oh, well, not so much. And we've seen the same thing, frankly, with, uh, with COVID, with biotech. And all of a sudden now, uh, biotech becomes uh, um, a threat in some ways, rather than uh, the uh, savior, I'll, I'll use that word with caution, that it's been become as the, the treatments, I'll, I'll say that, have developed in response to the, uh, the disease. So we had two two comments in the back, Tina. Yeah, um, is this already passe, or will the next wave of mad scientists be creating AI that is the monster that turns on us? Hmm. It's probably already here, and we just don't realize yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, go back to HAL, <laughs> HAL 9000. You know, that that trope is, is just the, the, the next generation, I think, of, of that, you know, because computer scientists will tell you, we don't know how AIs think, and one of the things that they're really working on is how do we get that transparency to understand how they're coming to the decisions they're coming to, how do they make those decisions? Yeah, the path data impacts their decision making, which is why, like, the, um, the police whatever predictions about where the next crimes will be mm -hmm. is so racist because yeah. all of the stuff in the past and who gets promotion men so what does the ai do promote men yeah but I, so. I think regarding what we're calling <clears throat> ai right now it's vastly different from the science fiction ai of hal 9000 or colossus the forman project those things um, in fact Modern AI, uh, yeah, I mean, so so the the old science fiction AI was self-aware, uh, self-replicating, uh, uh, self-preserving, you know, basically willing to fight to stay alive, something like that. And um, the AI that we're using now is nothing even close to that. All right, what they're calling AI now is really just a bunch of computer code that's been put into a computer by. Um, not mad scientists, but by coders. And, and so um, I, I don't think we're approaching a level of sophistication in AI where we can, where, where it's even going to get close to being, you know, a mad scientist, because we're not even, we're light years away from, from intelligent computers. But science fiction is always the one that predicts going out beyond what's current. Gloria? Um, it doesn't need to be capable of doing these things for there to be very serious shifts in the whole society because the legal field is going to have to deal with robot personhood as a legal 
a legal thing that may be forced in by co uh, corporations are going to want robots to be persons or not want them to be persons for legal reasons. You know, like these self-driving cars. Is that a person? Your, your son is run over by a self-driving car. Is this a person I can sue or is this a corporation that says, oh, well, we were, it was somebody tampered with it, it was fine. So that's a big field now. It's the beginning of a field called robot personhood and um, ethicists are getting into this argument of how these things will fit into human society. And they could still be just programmed things, but they're out there doing things now. They're delivering pizzas at the U of A campus. Maybe they'll <laughs> run over somebody. Um, so you, you have to consider how are they functioning in society, not just whether they're self-aware or not. Yeah. I can add on to that. I actually work in computer science, and uh, um, there, there's a big difference between um, the AI that we're used to in fiction, right? Mm -hmm. um, where you know you have things like Skynet, right? Which the, you know we what did we create? Oh, I'm Miles Dyson. I'm really repentant. I, I shouldn't have done that, Mr. Terminator. But um, and, and that I think is is definitely a very fertile birthing ground in science fiction. You know, is is AI now this monster? And you can look at episodes of Star Trek, right, where. You know, it's a trope they have where we get to the bottom of everything, and it's a sentient computer with a really evil laugh somewhere in a basement. You know, um, in, in modern times, though, you know what we actually do have now. Um, we do have machine learning, where it's basically just a whole lot of statistics that says people generally do A when you know based with the environmental factors of X, Y, and Z. Um, and then you have AI, which it's been mentioned here. Nobody really understands how neural networks work. Anyone who says they does or says they do is probably lying, um, and that just kind of comes from the fact that we don't really understand how brains work. I mean, you know, we have brain structures, and we get that certain things happen here and there, but it's all kind of misty and nebulous. And there's a lot of focus within computer science to try and understand how does a neural network work? Because if I can understand that fundamentally, I get my transparency. I can understand exactly how things are thinking. But we're still not there, um, and I kind of am glad we're not there. In a way, um, having worked with some AI machine learning at places like Amazon, um, I don't want them to have absolute power over AI. They've got enough wealth and influence right now. But again, that's fertile ground for more stories, right? Is the mad scientist a corporation? Is it Amazon, right? You know, um, and I think that the mad scientist morphing from a person to an organization maybe also morphs into an artificial intelligence as this evolution continues. Yeah, how do you build in conscience of morality before it gets to the point where the machines can't think for themselves and right. make decisions based on their own perception of the world as what's good for them and what's good for society at large and should they care? Yeah, yeah which you know. is why the, uh, um, the military is so concerned about that very thing, which some of you may say, uh, really? But, you know, when, when you get into the business of firing missiles and dropping bombs and killing real people, uh, they, 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 the, the generals and the, the civilian leaders very actually do understand that, that there are ethical issues involved in that, and that's why the, the effort, and I've, I've got a background in the military, I was in the Air Force for 20 plus years in command and control. Air Force. And, all right, and uh, you know, so this is this is a big uh, big topic of uh, uh, discussion there because you know lethal force. The whole is thing is precision targeting, not 
wholesale destruction. It, even though it's precision targeting, you can precisely target the wrong. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. Though yeah. you want yeah. the right thing on the right target yes. for the right reason yeah. at the right time. Absolutely, that's the thing that was drilled into us. Yes. Yes. Absolutely, Gloria. I'd like to return this to the rhetorical and the forensic in civil society, not just in the military. <coughs> That's important, but in civil society, these things are going to proliferate. We're going to have smart houses, fabrics that are going to talk to us, or do other things to us. And and right now, we're the beginnings of it is yeah. these self-driving cars and vehicles that have had accidents and. So the legal field is going to be at the foundation of trying to define who's responsible. Somebody's killed, the whole family gets wiped out by some vehicle that has no driver. Who's responsible? That's where the law comes in. Yeah, and not just there, Gloria. Um, I have what uh, its, its manufacturers call AI installed on my computer at home right now. It's, it's a no noise-canceling yes. software called CRISP, and uh, I get these, uh, I'm, I'm signed up for this advertising thing where every every day I get these, uh, a list of these new programs that are out that are available for sale, but you know, they're all business related one way or another, and uh, a lot of them build themselves as AI, so whether they're technically AI machine learning or, or whatever is kind of beside the point, it's not just coming, it's, it's starting to be here. We've had a number of questions. The gentleman in the black hat in the back. So, uh, in relation to fiction, uh, a lot of times writers will write their antagonists either based on their own personal fears or the fears that they anticipate their readers yeah. will put as central fear to them. Would each of you talk to whether you write your antagonists from the standpoint of your fears or what you anticipate your readers are afraid of? Oh, good question. Um, I'll, I'll answer that because that was one of the things that I was really thinking about as I started this series. Uh, this series started much too long ago, but it, it started or it was inspired by the, the bird flu of the, uh, the early 2000s. And the, the fear, thank you uh, news media, that this was going to be a worldwide pandemic and everybody was going to die and oh isn't that wonderful we get to cover the end of the world which just pissed me off so one of my antagonistic characters is a reporter. Uh, but that's, uh, so I was reflecting more on, um, in, in the light of that question, what I thought my readers would be fearing. Well, I would think that most fears are universal with a few exceptions. And what would scare an author would potentially scare their audience. I mean, I'm always thinking of the Stephen King quote where yeah. I set out I say that to, to, to terrify somebody. If I can't ter terrify them, I'll shock them. If I can't shock them, I'll go for the gross out. <laughs> you know, it's like there, there, are, there are levels, and it's like, yeah. you know, you'll get, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, it's like, sphere of spiders might be somewhat universal, but they don't bother me. So how do yeah. you, uh, yeah. well, I can think of what's the worst thing that could possibly happen to me? You know, somebody out there is going to feel the same way. Yeah. Well, Stephen King also said that he writes what, about what scares him. Right. Yeah. I think he's probably tapped into some pretty pretty solid base. Oh, yeah. It's working for him. So. Oh, yeah, clearly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he's doing okay. Um, I, I guess from my perspective, I do write antagonists that play on my own fears. Um, in my most recent book, um, 
you know, you have antagonists that are part of a society that to me seemed like a kind of scary and natural outgrowth of where we are today, where you have a lot of governments that have, with a lack of oversight, turned to fascism, and you have a lot of uh, corporations with, again, lack of oversight, who have turned to just doing whatever they want. And maybe this kind of goes back to the whole mad scientist trope of, you know, what makes a mad scientist mad? Not having boundaries, not having ethics, doing whatever they want for their own goals simply because they have the power to do so. And so that's where a lot of the antagonism in, in my story came from. So that's a really good question. And I say that because I'd never considered that before. And I, I kind of had a chance here to think about it. I, and I think from, for myself, I usually find something that is common to my fears and to what I think. I know I, I, know I always consider, will, it, will the reader fear this? But I don't think I includes, I don't think I go where I'm not also afraid of it because I, I don't think I could write about it that much. I'm not terribly afraid of snakes, and I might not be able to um, give the the internal visceral give the feeling of the internal visceral reaction that someone who is afraid of snakes would be if if I wrote that into my story. So I, I think that what I've managed to think about and come up with in the last few moments is I try to find. Uh, I, I do worry about what the reader will be afraid of, but I try to find something that we have a common ground on. So you couldn't write snakes on a plane? <laughs> I couldn't write what? Snakes on a plane? No, I wouldn't write that. Yeah, I'd just kill them. Yeah, 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 well, and, and, as an aviator, the simple solution, depressurize the airplane, let I, the passengers go on oxygen, the, the snakes suffocate, boom, done. I <laughs> sort of almost grew up in Texas and... Uh, as a as a uh, young child, remember carrying a twenty two pistol, yeah. walking through the cornfields hunting rattlesnakes because it was a bad year, and they were as my as my great aunt Annie said, uh, they're biting all the mezkins, and we need workers. <laughs> and, and you know she wasn't being it was, they they were having a bad year, and I just remember walking through the fields, and and you don't know you're ready to shoot a rattler until you hear it first. Yeah. And, uh, and then you pause and you wait and hope that you can figure out where it is in all the corn stalks yeah. and uh, hope that it's not like this. Yeah. Well, yeah. the law of unintended consequences also has applications that oh, nobody yeah. can really foresee. I mean, the 3D printer has been a boon for creative people, yep. but now people can make zip guns that they can take on planes and nobody saw that coming. Yep. So as soon as you create one technology, there are several applications which might be good or might be horrible. So it makes everyone a potential mad scientist because, ah, oh, there's an avenue for destruction I never considered before. Yeah. I think I'll try this. Yeah. Gloria, what have you seen in, uh, historically in your, well, your academic I was research. just going to say in terms of uh, fears and what's coming, <coughs> I don't personally have a lot of background in writing science fiction, but I coordinate, as I say, this Zoomers group of hard science people. We had two months on this, on AI, the fears of AI, ethics about robots, and the legal personhood of robots. So I would recommend you get on our list and, and start getting the announcements because we had a, a, a communication scholar who was dealing with all the rhetoric about when when is a robot truly AI and what do we do about it ethically, and then another man who's working on the laws, actual laws about robot personhood. Mm -hmm. 
So these guys had terrific things to tell us that were of use to writers. Yeah, but right. I, 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 you know, when I, just a quick note on AI. Let's let's not forget that that the only computer that doesn't have any human prejudice built into it is one that doesn't have any code. <laughs> and they and they learned that with through AI. I don't know if you recall, but about four or five years ago, Amazon, Google, they held these facial recognition systems, yeah. and guess what? It did a really good job recognizing white people, but it didn't do a good job recognizing black people, Asians, all right, because all the code was written by white people, all right? And so AI, you know, I think we view AI as this thing that's going to be, it's going to be this magic thing that won't have all the biases built into it. It's going to learn, yeah. and it's going to learn in some magic way, and the and it won't have all that stuff. No, it's it's programmed by people who have biases, and it's as biased as it always as all the other code is. Well, think about an abacus. It's a primitive computer, and it's probably prejudiced against people who don't have dexterous skills, you know, or who are left-handed because you go right to left. Yeah, back in the back. Well, it's interesting that you preface that with uh, what I was going to say with abacus versus computer, because I think what's really intriguing about all of this is the, the speed that mistakes can happen that are somewhat irreversible. So uh, an abacus, you fuck up, you just go back with the beat, but a computer can happen very quickly. Two things I was thinking of, back in uh, the time that uh, uh, Obama was president, at one point somebody hacked the Twitter account of a Associated Press and said that there was an explosion at the White House and they didn't know what happened to the president. Well, that gets picked up by bots, not by other people. So that information immediately goes around the country and in the world. They got it fixed in three minutes, but the stock market plummeted. I forget how much money was lost. We just had a joke thing happen with Twitter, right? With uh, whose check mark is whose check mark. Right. Yeah. So someone got on did this whole thing about Eli Lilly. In that time, their stock goes down. Three different places that make all of the insulin go down. We're like, wow, what an insane joke. Friends of mine who have insulin are like, this is no joke. <laughs> you can't get insulin unless these places are going. And uh, the uh, stuff that you can get at Walmart doesn't work nearly as good. So we're almost being held hostage by a joke today. All of that happens because it happens immediately. It's yeah. in a flash. And we have automated things to such a degree that there is no watchdog. So I, what I think is interesting about mad scientists, and somebody had mentioned before, history is written by the winners. It's also uh, bad, bad guys don't know they're bad guys. Most of the time they believe that they are doing something that's very good. They think that they're going down the right path. It doesn't take much for the benign become something that's very dangerous. Uh, what interests me is the things that we have in history where we know now that we had a mad science. Jonas Salk, right? We all can thank Jonas Salk for getting us the, 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 uh, the uh, oh, yeah. thank you. But he tested that on mentally ill people who had no agency to be able to say yay or nay, whether they would be able to take that. Now, the thing is, he says he took it himself as well, but there were a lot of people that he was a monster. So I think it's very interesting we start talking about the idea of ethics and science, that you know, the slow motion versus the fast motion, that kind of thing can happen. A decision can be made by someone, even by mistake. 
Yeah. And it can take hundreds of thousands. Well, that's a good so point. Back here in the back. Gloria, you mentioned a listserv for nonfiction, so it's not hard science. Yes. But you didn't tell us what it is, so we oh. could go there and sign up. <coughs> oh, well, I'll just give you, <laughs> excuse me, I'll give you my email. Write it down. Okay. It's glomick, G-L-O-M-C, <coughs> at dakotacom, D-A-K-O-T-A-C-O-M dot net. Dakotacom is one word, dot net. And just make a note, get on our, our listserv, and then um, you will be able to access these monthly announcements and also the, we have a separate YouTube channel that goes with our group. So could you repeat it one more time, please? So sure okay, G-L-O-M-C at Dakota.com, D-A-K-O-T-A-C-O-M dot net, N-E-T. I was going to say, whenever I think about mad scientists, I always think about uh, Ignis Samwise, just mm -hmm. yelling at people for not washing their hands, and everybody's mm -hmm. like, what the hell is this guy talking about? You know, but yeah. it's like, in reality, it's like, aren't we all mad? And they're the ones that are sane because they end up being right in the end, you know? Well, but then how many weren't right? Yeah. We remember these people because they were right. We don't remember the nutcases that, you know, said, you know, do something on the, on the you know, full moon and bury this yeah. thing in the ground because it wasn't right. So th there's a, there's a real skew toward that between like Semmelweis and Lister and but and even worked. Jonas Salk, who yes did those worked. experiments, but you know uh, you, you start looking at at any of the really revolutionary ideas yes. in science and medicine, oftentimes these people were very single-minded, and I think that's the yeah. trope of the mad scientist. Yeah. Nobody's the villain of their own story. They all think they're doing the right thing, but they're so single-minded about doing it that they right. completely ignore, you know, controls and peer review and ethics and all these other things that have been mentioned. Yeah. Now, if you're right and you have this breakthrough, everybody thinks you're wonderful. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of Edward Jenner and the smallpox vaccine. He was. He's, he had an idea. It made sense to him, yeah. but nobody is completely in control of, of science. You don't know that again. The, 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 the problem with this, and, and what I see going on now, at least in my field, is that we have been taught by mad scientist fiction and movies and other things. It's why the mad scientist has gone away and it's been replaced by the evil corporation. We've been taught to question these things. We're not as naive and as admiring of science anymore. We've come around to quite the opposite. Yeah. Well, look at all so the death threats that Dr. Fauci got. No, but I, I'm just saying, <laughs> so if you look, say, at the COVID vaccine, all right, not being political about this, right. but just look at how that was developed. The, everybody says, oh, it came too fast, and, you know, they gave, you know, dispensation for all this other stuff, and they guaranteed the money. It was a direct pivot from all of these drugs that you see advertised on TV that end with MAB. Anything that ends with MAB is a monoclonal antibody. And the technology that allowed them to develop these very specific antibodies to very specific proteins in these diseases allowed them to pivot very rapidly to developing an antibody to a specific protein on a virus. I have, I have another aspect that, um, I'm going to stand up again, 
that uh, there's a really good old film, and most of you may not go back this far in your film viewing, from the 1930s with Paul Muni called The Life of Emil, uh, not Emil, of Louis Pasteur. Yeah. And uh, he did try. There's another aspect, not that they don't go to peer review, they wouldn't peer review him. Right. Because they yeah. just said, you're not part of our club, yeah. you don't get to do your, we won't peer review you. And he, was, he had all the skills, and he could have done excellent outcomes with peer reviews, but they would not even do it. So then in the film, there's that famous scene where he injects half the sheep with his um, vaccine against, I think it was anthrax, and the others that uh, didn't have it, and they thought his sheep had died, and someone claps his hands, and they all go, bah! and they're all <laughs> living. So, you know, this is a, a person who had the skills, would have done it, but because of the, the in-group, uh, you have to have the badges and the credentials, they wouldn't, period. He wanted to be part of the group. Yeah. Well, there's a question um, So, one of the things that I think, in the least fiction for why mad scientists kind of dropped off is, a lot of the villains and other people, well, you know, you needed more recognized or be able to see yourself in some of the roles. So some of the villains became a bit more sympathetic and they needed more complicated backstories. Just being crazy isn't always mm -hmm. able to be associated with. So then they became more, less crazy and more, it was like, well, yeah, when you say it like that, I can understand it. And then it becomes less crazy and more understandable. Okay. Which is part of why they kind of went off, because they're now no longer crazy. Like, Frankenstein is like, yeah, building people, kind of crazy. Well, you were really lonely. Okay, I can see a one reason. But, you know, it is a... When you start to understand them more, it's less crazy and more yeah, you kind of went down the wrong path there boy but I think I think that's a big part of what of, of the enjoyable mad scientist characters is that they start out not crazy they start out with with almost with with motives that most of us can sympathize with and then and as you say they they kind of eventually they drift off and go down the wrong path and they and in a really good book they do it slowly all right they make a decision they make a, a small decision that's questionable but not bad but that's just a little bit in the wrong direction and then the next decision is a little more questionable but not bad and they the and and the you know i read i i read frankenstein a long 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 time ago i'm so old i i edited saint peter's manuscript <laughs> uh, and but as I recall, he, you know, he's, he had good motives in the beginning, and I empathized with him. And that was the that was kind of the more painful part of the story uh, for me was that you know I kind of felt sad for this poor stupid dumb shit who who made some decisions that I couldn't disagree with in the beginning, but they were those little decisions that started him on the way. And that's I think a really good story when you can get a reader to be empathizing with with the villain and, and walk down that path, but in the end you hate the villain, just I hated him in the end just as much as I empathized with him and felt sorry for him early on in the story, you know, and, and that's one thing that I, the one thing that I remember from that reading, reading that book a long, 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 long time ago. Yeah, 
I think you're right. And I, I, if we kind of build on that idea of the sympathetic mad scientist, we, we see a lot in fiction today of the mad scientist that's not the villain. You know, like you can look at Jurassic Park, for example. I can't remember the name of the doctor who, you know, made the dinosaurs, the frogs, or whatever. But he wasn't necessarily the villain of the story. He was just a guy who made a mistake, and there was sympathy for him. And then that has gone even farther, I think, where you have mad scientists that are, you know, good guys, quote unquote, Doc Brown. He's a mad scientist. He makes a time machine in his garage, right? But you don't hate Doc Brown. He's kooky Doc Brown. You want him to live when the terrorists shoot him, right? And uh, even in modern stories now, in comedy, like uh, Rick and Morty, Rick Sanchez is a mad scientist, a classic mad scientist. And he's maybe not the most sympathetic character, but they give you little snippets of his life to make you kind of feel bad for him. Um, and he's not the bad guy. Well, some people probably feel yeah. like he's the bad guy, right? But um, you know, he's kind of like this chimeric character in that way, but he's not the villain of every story, right? So I, I think maybe there's been an evolution there too, where we still have mad scientists, just not in the bad guy role. Yeah, the, the, uh, the character in Breaking Bad. I've forgotten his name. Oh, yeah. Walter yeah. White. Walter White. Yeah. yeah, now he's doing that to, to kill drug dealers. And there were an enormous number of viewers who were really pissed off when he, when they offed him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lori. Well, there's a certain selection toward um, Asperger's people in some fields, actually built into the surveys and the questionnaires that they give to potential uh, candidates because they are the best at simply tuning out everything Focus, yeah. and focusing. And I don't know if people are aware of that, that that is a conscious. Uh, they're trying to locate these people for yeah, some types of jobs. There's a, I think they call themselves a school, I think, but uh, they're, they're out in, in LA, in, in Hollywood or near Hollywood, where they were hiring autistic people uh, to colorize old black and white films because they would have the focus on the small details of how to it's get not, the It's not even exactly so much right. that as uh, my son is Asperger's. Okay. And little teeny tiny things. Mm -hmm. It's not attention to detail. It's okay. like this is a major standout in his brain. Right. To the point where a stray thread mm -hmm. will drive him crazy. Uh -huh. It's kind of OCD to the max. Yeah. And then if you add into that no filter, <laughs> yeah. it becomes a problem. Yeah. If you can teach, as we have with him, mm -hmm. focus on that. Um, this is a kid who can quote you the you know thrust ratios and statistics on every jet engine GE ever built because that's his obsession. Yeah. If I could get him into that field, he'd be an excellent jet engine mechanic. Yeah. But the math requirements for even getting into the training are too high for him. Mm. He's 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 in HVAC school right now. He's doing very well. Why? Because all the circuits are there. Oh, that circuit isn't right, and he, he's even corrected his instructor. It's like, no, no, you got that going the wrong way. Because those little tiny details just, it, it's like a red flag. It just yeah. flares for them. So that, they would be very, yeah. some people with that yes. particular bend. And yes. not all the, no, certainly not. you can't generalize right. autism and Asperger's to everybody. That's right. Because That's right. it's not the same. Yes. But you can select for mm -hmm. people who have very specific ticks yeah. and then help them utilize that in a meaningful way. Well, it reminds me of World War II when they would hire, I don't want to use the word, well, the word midgets, you know, mm -hmm. small people to work on aircraft because they could fit into the spaces to, because uh, they didn't have robots and stuff, they could do assemblies and yeah. 
And they had a specific function because they could do it and nobody else well, really and, could. And that was one of the reasons, one of the reasons that given for, I think it was the, um, the Corsair, all women on the assembly line. Mm. Because in order to get into the cowling and get it in there, you needed somebody with long skinny arms. And most men couldn't fit past some of the things. And so they put all women on there, not just not small people. Right, but but again, you know, the took advantage of a physiological difference. Is that women are good at repetitive tasks and attention to detail, and for that specific purpose, it actually works. It makes sense. We can't be running it. Well, we're five minutes out <coughs> from the end of the, uh, the the talk, so. Last questions. Last call for questions. Uh, I was just going to say, I, I think I think most one of the things that differentiates mad scientists from everybody else is their individuality. You know, I, I just don't follow the group. Uh -huh. Okay. Mm -hmm. Panelists, last comments. Gloria, I'll be oh, well, your um, I, I hope those of you who <laughs> this is a shameless plug. Those of you who took down the, the email, I hope you will contact me, and we have had speakers who are marvelous from all over the country on these very topics, so you can clue in to some of our past meetings. And I think that in the next decade, all the villains and all the stories are going to be mad politicians who know they're lying their fucking asses off. They don't <laughs> care because it gets them power. <laughs> I got some of those. <laughs> I'm going to write that story. Uh, thanks, everybody, for coming. It's been great talking to you. I just have a reading recommendation for you all before you leave. It's called Mad, Bad, and Dangerous, The Scientist in the Cinema by Christopher Frailing. So uh, pursue this further, and of course it's got rock bang from Metropolis on the cover. He built a robot and just did all kinds of horrible stuff. There we go. And uh, last shameless plug for those of us who have books. I'm sure they're in the bookstore, and I even have little cards so you can uh, order the ebooks if that's what you wish. Thank you all very much for a very engaged audience, and thank you, panelists. That was fantastic. Thank you for listening to the Creative Play and Podcast Network. If you enjoyed our show, please check out D&D Journey of the Fifth Edition and Ragnarok and roll a Scion Hero to Ragnarok Story. Also, check out our Patreon page for more content and behind-the-scenes things, as well as joining us for a one-shot game or two.